I am Pastor Michael. Uh, it's good to be back. My family and I have been on vacation for the last several weeks. Uh, one of the highlights is that uh, my family and I visited Bryce Canyon National Park, uh, which is really beautiful, stunning. And uh, the last night we were there, we drove out at night. Um, it's around 11 p.m. and we went to a parking lot, which by this at this point in the day is completely empty. And then we laid down in the middle of the parking lot, and then we just looked up at the starry sky, uh, starry night. My, uh, because we live in uh, in the city, of course, we rarely get to see more than a dozen stars. This was the first time my boys got to see the Milky Way. And um, it was brilliant. It was, it was like jewels hanging on a black curtain. And it reminded me of Psalm 19. The stars declare, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pour forth speech. Night to night they reveal knowledge. And I have to I have to tell you this past year this pandemic year has been the most difficult year of ministry I have ever experienced by far no comparison this this has been a year of intense controversy conflict anger and um, as I was looking up at the night sky it reminded me of how big God is how the nations are like a drop in the bucket in the hand of our Lord. And therefore, he's in absolute control. You know, the the swirling turmoil of human drama, it seems like this tornado, you know, about to overtake us, but it's like little ripples in the bucket of water that God is holding. And it gave me a lot of peace and a lot of comfort to know that um, our lives are in God's hands. There's a lot more stories I wish I could share with you. You can come and ask me about them. Uh, We had a lot of adventures on our vacation, but I just wanted to share that little vignette. Um, We're doing a sermon series in Deuteronomy. So the word deutero means second. Nomos means law. Deuteronomos Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Um, Remember, Deuteronomy is addressed to what is now the second generation coming out of the Exodus. And so they receive the law once more. And what is this law? This is the law that was given at Mount Sinai through Moses, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. What is the Mosaic Covenant? That's the question that I'm going to try to answer in today's sermon. What is the Mosaic Covenant about? What is it basically saying? You know, what's the essence of it? And I want you to know this is a huge question, monstrous question, and and almost impossible, the audacity to even try to sum it up in a single sermon. But I'm going to try, um, because this text in particular shows us really the heart of the covenant 
And then we're going to be unpacking it and looking at the Mosaic Covenant all throughout this sermon series. So, with that in mind, let's read our text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. I'll read it for you. This is a Moses addressing the, the people of Israel on the plains of Moab. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, by doing what is evil on the side of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in tribulation and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of God. So I have three points I'd like to make. This is my outline. Number one, we're going to look at first this command in the law that we are to pass down our faith to our children. Secondly, we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant what is the structure of it? What is it basically saying? And then finally, we're going to see the grace of the covenant. All right, so let's begin. Number one, passing down the faith to our children. So before we dive into this main question of what is the Mosaic Covenant, I want to go on a little bit of a side quest. Uh, please indulge me, um, but this is something I'm very passionate about, so I can't missed the opportunity. Um, but I want us to look at verse 25, the very beginning. It's a very significant, important verse. Let me read it for you again. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil on the side of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger... So what is he saying here? He's saying basically the same thing that he said in verse 9 earlier in Deuteronomy 4, which is Moses says, make these laws, right? He's talking about all of these laws he's giving them known to your children and to your children's children. So do you hear what Moses is saying? He's saying one of the essential ways one of the essential ways that you keep the law of God is that you have to teach your children to keep the law of God. So that it's not enough that you individually, personally keep the law, 
but you have to pass down your faith to your children so that your children keep the law. I think this is deeply profound because our children reveal our deepest heart commitments. Recently, I uh, read an article, which actually a member of of the church sent to me, I I love that, uh, written by Christian Smith. Christian Smith is a uh, sociologist of religion at Notre Dame. He's very well respected in his field. And he wrote this article looking at all of this uh, mountain of research data. And he's interested in the question, how does uh, how is faith transferred from one generation to the next? Now, I want you to know the statistics on this are depressing. According to a multiple of surveys, about two-thirds, two-thirds of the children of believers stop going to church and stop believing in Christ uh, by their early 20s. I I want you to grapple with this, okay? What that means is that if this, this larger statistic holds true, for the children in our church, in IGC, we should expect about only one in three of our children to remain in the church and to continue being a Christian when they're a young adult. That's the baseline reality. And we have to wrestle with that. What is going on? We have to remember that we live in this deeply unbelieving culture all around us. It surrounds us. It's constantly speaking to us. And it makes Christianity seem implausible, even immoral. And it's constantly exerting this force on us like a stream always pulling us away from devotion to Christ. And our children, because they're young and unformed, are especially susceptible to this influence. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Well, according to Christian Smith, according to the research data, the single greatest factor, by far, no comparison, the single greatest factor is the role of the parents. Not whether your children are participating in church youth group, not whether they're enrolled in private Christian school, not any outside the home activity, all of those things have actually minimal effect if the crucial central piece is missing. And the crucial central piece, according to the research data, are the parents. Whether for the parents, faith is central in their lives so that they're reading the Bible to their children, whether they're praying with their children every night, whether they talk about their devotion to God at the dinner table, all these things which we might call home discipleship so that it's a daily rhythm in your life, or whether for the parents... Christianity is relegated to the periphery. It's something that you really only do on Sunday mornings, maybe. Or maybe you send your kids to Friday night youth group so that it's really at the margins because, listen to me, 
Our children are no fools. They know just by observing us whether Christianity is for real or if it's just for lip service. What I love about the research data is that it deeply resonates with what scripture tells us. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You shall teach them, right? This is the laws of God. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Do you hear the intensity of this? And so what the Bible is telling us and what the research data is telling us, and listen to me carefully, is that you cannot pass down your faith to your children on the cheap. It can only be done if it is the passionate center of your life. That's what the data is telling us. Because what you do at home is the most intimate thing that you do. Your children is like a window into the soul, into your soul and what you most passionately care about. Because our time with our children is limited. There are only so many hours in the day. You know, everyone who is a parent here has ambitions and dreams for their children. I want my children to do well at sports and be athletic. I want them to excel in academics. I want them to have a rich social life. I want to take them on trips and have all these different kinds of experiences. I want so many things for my children. But as every parent knows, because your time is limited, there's only so much you can do. And therefore, realistically, realistically, you can only do one maybe two things well with your children. And therefore, don't you see, this command is a test of the authenticity of your faith because your children reveal what you ultimately value. Do you love God or do you love other things more than Him? Your children will reveal that. Let me add a very important caveat to this. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I want you to know that is not a promise. That is not a guarantee. But it is a general principle. It is a description of how God's ordinary providence works in your life. However, there are exceptions. You can do everything right. You can be a godly, engaged parent, and in the end, your children will reject Christ. And you can be a very negligent, absentee parent. But in the end, because of the grace of God, your children will be saved. Because you're not in control. God is in control. But do not presume upon the grace of God. You must be diligent with the spiritual responsibilities you have as a parent. Let me add a second note. I want you to listen to this. I want you to know that this applies not only to those of you who are parents 
here in IGC. But this applies to all the members, all the believers in this church. Because as a follower of Christ, you can bear spiritual children. The Apostle Paul called Timothy his spiritual son. The Apostle John, when he was writing epistles, uh, addressed the church as a father writing to his children. And so how do you, how do you produce spiritual children? It's really simple. You just go and you find a younger believer in the church and then you mentor them, you disciple them, you pour into them so that just like biological parents reproduce themselves through physical children, Christians, if you so choose, you can reproduce yourself through spiritual children. I think this is the most beautiful thing you can do. Uh, the other day I was talking to um, a woman in the church and she said to me, she said, you know, I am now in the twilight of my career. I'm in the twilight of my career. And she says, for the rest of my life, she basically said to me, I want to bear spiritual children. I want to raise up spiritual daughters who will love the Lord with all their strength and all their might and who will carry on after me after I die. I was so amazed. I think this is the most beautiful thing you can do with your life. And I want you to know this is the vision of our church. The vision of our church is to follow Jesus and to help others to follow him. That's what the Christian life is about. Let me add a third note, and uh, this will be my final note. There's so much more to be said on this, but I'm going to constrain myself. Notice in the text, it says that we are to teach our children and our children's children down through the generations. You know, it's one thing to teach your children who are in your home. How do you teach your children's children? And if I could take it one step further, how do you teach the children of your children's children? I think this is so profound because what scripture is telling us is that we have a moral, solemn responsibility to pass down our faith to generations that we may not even meet. That we will be held responsible not only for the faith of our children, but for the faith of our children's children. And so the question is, how do you instruct future believers that you may not have direct access to, that you may not even directly meet ever? And the answer, the answer is we have to create a system. We have to create a structure that is bigger than us as individuals. In other words, we need the institution of the church. One of the main purposes of the church is to help us to teach our children, not as individuals, that's very important. Home discipleship is crucial, but not just as individuals, but together as a community, as a community project, so that we're, 
we're helping one another, we're encouraging one another, we're doing it together, we're parenting each other's children so that we're building this legacy of faith that we can pass down through the generations. This is something that I'm very passionate about. How can we build a, a enduring church that will last through the decades so that when we are dead, when everyone on this field is dead, our children's children and the children of our children's children will worship and know the Lord. That is our vision. It reminds me of an old folk proverb. If you want to go fast, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. We want to go far. And so we have to work together as a church. Second point, the Mosaic Covenant. Now we're getting to the heart of it. Look with me to the next verse, verse 26. I call, Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. This is judicial language. You call a witness in a court of law. And so Moses here is acting as a prosecutor in a courtroom, charging Israel with breaking covenant. That's what's going on. So what is a covenant? It's the Hebrew word bereath. And I want you to know that covenant, bereath, is the master paradigm for understanding all of the Bible, Old and New Testament. It connects them both. And it actually appears only for the first time here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It appears once again in verse 31. But actually all of Deuteronomy is informed by this paradigm so that Deuteronomy is a covenant document. Now, what is a covenant? Let me give you a very quick definition and then I'm going to unpack it and expand it, okay? So here's a covenant. Listen carefully. A covenant is a legally binding relationship. Covenant is a legally binding relationship. So let me unpack that. First of all, a covenant is a relationship. But it's not a casual relationship that you might have with your neighbor or coworker or, or someone who is just a friend because you don't have legal obligations to them. You can just come and go as you please, which is sometimes why hurt feelings happen, right? Because there are different expectations. But in a casual relationship, the terms are not defined. But when a relationship is really serious, when it is a deep love relationship, you have to put it in a covenant. You cannot leave the terms vague because the only way that you will feel secure, the only way for that love relationship to deepen and to grow is you have to protect it with a covenant. Now, in modern society, because we're so individualistic, we don't really have covenants anymore. But one of the very few covenants that we still have left is marriage. And actually, uh, church membership is another co- another covenant as well, but which we saw uh, in the ceremony. But marriage really is the paradigm 
a covenant in our society. And in marriage, you can't just come and go as you please. You can't just do whatever you want. Because in marriage, you are bound to one another. There are mutual obligations. There are rules. The most basic rule is no infidelity. So that your spouse cannot say to you, what do you mean I can't sleep around? I didn't know that rule. No one can say that because the terms are clear. And because marriage has clear rules, it is a legal relationship. You are bound by the laws of that relationship. And you enter through such a covenant because it's so serious, because it's so legal, you enter through it, into it through an oath. This is what was going on on your wedding day, right? You had this formal ceremony, you made solemn promises to one another, you had witnesses who can testify that these oaths were made. And in a covenant, there are blessings and curses. The blessings, if you keep the covenant, is you have a happy marriage, you have a happy life. If you break the covenant, the curse is marital discord and ultimately divorce, which, as we all know, is a legal proceeding. So let's go back to the Bible now with this definition. You need to understand that when Israel was gathered at Mount Sinai, after they had come out of Egypt... They were entering into a covenant with God. It was a covenant ceremony, just like a wedding. And the terms of the covenant, the rules of the relationship are spelled out in the Torah, particularly the books of Exodus and Leviticus, and then they are restated, repeated in Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomos to the second generation, so that the second generation, right before they enter the promised land, they're going through a covenant renewal ceremony, right? It's like renewing your marriage vows. The blessings of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, is if they keep it, they will live and prosper in the promised land, which is the very presence of God. Remember, in the the heart of the promised land, is the tabernacle, then the temple, which is the dwelling place of God, so that God will be with his people in the promised land. And the curses of the covenant, which are outlined for us in verses 26 through 28, is expulsion from the land. Foreign armies will invade. They will kill and destroy. The temple will be destroyed. And then the the remaining people will will be taken into captivity and into exile. That's the Mosaic Covenant. There it is. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this is where a lot of people get upset (laughs) because it seems rather harsh. Death, exile, banishment from the land. You know, people say, this is what I don't like about religion, particularly the Old Testament. It seems like it's just based on threats and punishment. So let me respond to that. Let me try to persuade you. Suppose you're in a marriage and it's a very bad marriage. 
Your spouse is abusive and neglectful. Your spouse stays out late at night without letting you know. They come and go as they please. They show no regard for you. And when they speak to you, it is with angry and hateful words. And then one day you discover that all along they were living this parallel life, this secret life in which they were carrying on an affair. And when you confront your spouse, they deny it, they dismiss your concerns, they refuse to change. What would you do? After repeated appeals for them to change, you would say to them, I don't think you love me. I don't think you respect me. And therefore, we cannot be in a relationship together. And the marriage would end. And that would be right. What Moses is saying in our passage, he's telling the people of Israel, if you repeatedly violate your covenant relationship with God, if you don't show that you love Him, if you don't honor Him, if you pursue other gods and you are unfaithful to Him, then one day God will say to you, after repeated appeals for you to change, He will say, we can't be in a relationship anymore. This covenant is over and He will remove Himself from the relationship. But I want you to think about what that means. If God is the creator, if he is the source of all life, the, the, the giver of every good gift, then the absence of God must mean death, exile, banishment from the land. Do you therefore see how reasonable and fair this is? And I furthermore want you to see how fitting the punishment is. Look at verse 28. Moses says, and there, speaking of the exile, there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. I want you to know this is not excessive punishment. This is justice. Because what the Bible says is that the consequence of sin is more sin. The punishment for sin is that we continue in the sin and in the end the judgment of God is that he will give the people exactly exactly what they want which is their idols there is a haunting passage in Romans chapter 1 Romans 1 is a long meditation on human sin and the judgment of God verse 24 is the most haunting verse in Romans 1 this is what Paul writes. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. What does that language of gave them up mean? This is what it means. It means that God, in the ordinary course of our lives, He frustrates us because of His mercy, because of His goodness. He holds us back from our own sins. But in the final judgment, God will say to us, okay, 
you can have what you want. And He will give us up. He will let go. He will stop restraining us. And the greatest misery is that we will finally get what we so desperately want and then we will discover how empty it is and how it doesn't satisfy us. This is the Bible's doctrine of hell. So where does that leave us? I want you to see that the Mosaic Covenant is absolutely fair. It is absolutely fair because what it asks of us, and over the next several months, we are going to do a deep dive into all of the laws, all of the ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And my goal is to show you that the Mosaic Covenant prescribes a society that is beautiful and righteous. I hope that I can show you that this is the way human beings ought to live. This is the way we ought to treat one another. This is the way society should be structured. And the reason why our world is such a mess that it is, is because we don't live the way God has commanded us. And therefore, the human race deserves banishment from the earth. We deserve death, misery, exile. But if that is all that the Mosaic Covenant is, we are doomed. There is no hope for the human race. Because all the Mosaic Covenant gives us then is this perfect law, this perfect, beautiful, righteous law that condemns us, that shows us how far we fall short. Is that the end of the story? And the answer is no. There's another part to the Mosaic Covenant. There's another side to it. Remember I said earlier, in every covenant there are two parties. Every party has a set of obligations, promises that they've made. On our part, if we obey, we live. If we disobey, we perish. But what is God's part? So that leads me to the third point, the grace of the covenant. Notice, text doesn't end in verse 28. Praise God. But it goes on. Verse 29, Moses gives a prophecy. And in the prophecy, he says, when you go into exile, and notice, by the way, he's not, he doesn't talk about a possible, he's not warning about a possible future. He's saying this will happen, okay? This will happen. He says, when you go into exile, from there you will cry out to the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and you will return to God And he will comfort you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will restore you. That's basically verses 29 through 31 in a nutshell. Now, let's think about this. Okay, let's do a little bit of analysis. Notice, first of all, that God already knows that his people Israel will be unfaithful to him. He already knows. This is very important, okay? God enters into the covenant already knowing Israel will be unfaithful to him. Why would God do this? It's a little bit like this. Suppose you decide to buy your teenage son a brand new car, brand new Tesla. But before you give him the car, you 
give him driving lessons. You give him severe warnings about safety. Don't drink and drive. Don't do reckless stunts with your friends with this car. Be very careful. And then as you hand him the keys to his brand new car, you say to him, I already know that you are going to get into a car crash. I already know you're going to completely total this car. And so I'm already making payments on the second car. Your friend would say, why would you, why would you give your kid a car knowing he's going to destroy it? Or at the very least, buy him a cheap used car, right? Let me give you another analogy. Suppose you're dating a girl and you're about to propose to her. And when you propose to her, you tell her, I already know that you're going to be unfaithful to me. I already know that you're going to break my heart. You're going to run off with another man. You're going to bear his children. Does that story sound familiar to you, by the way? It's the story of Hosea and Gomer. In the Old Testament, God goes to Hosea, his prophet. He says, I want you to marry an unfaithful woman named Gomer. For my people Israel have been unfaithful to me. Now, why would anyone, why would anyone marry a woman that they absolutely know, not, you know, not speculating, not, not suspecting, but they absolutely know will break their heart and will be unfaithful to them. Why would anyone do such a thing? The only possible explanation is that they so love her unconditionally so that no matter what she will do in the marriage, they have already determined to forgive her and they will pursue her and they will not rest until they bring her back home safe again. In the Mosaic Covenant, God says to his people Israel, I already know you're going to be unfaithful to me. I already know, but I love you. I have already forgiven you. And I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. He's, this is the language of the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel. And you will return to me. And then you will truly love me. And I will give you this new power to obey me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. There's an amazing scene in Exodus 24. I really encourage everyone to go home and read Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is the inaugural ceremony of the Mosaic Covenant. What happens in the text is Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, having received the law from God. And then the text tells us that he writes it down in a book called the Book of the Covenant. So he writes it down. And then he assembles all the people of Israel at the foot of the mountain. He builds an altar. He sacrifices burnt offerings of oxen. And then he reads the law. He reads this book to the people, all the commandments, all the stipulations. It must have taken many, many hours. And then in verse 7, the text says the people respond by saying, listen to this. 
all that the Lord has spoken, all we will do. And we will be obedient. Do you see, the people accept the terms of God. They take an oath to keep the covenant. And then do you know what Moses does? Moses doesn't say a thing. But in the text, he takes the blood from the altar and then he throws it on the people. And then he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. It's this really graphic image, right? It's actually kind of gross, right? The people say, we will obey the law. All that the law commands, we will do. And Moses, in response, he takes buckets of blood and he just drenches the people. He throws it on the people so that they're dripping with blood. Do you see what this imagery is telling us? It's saying to us, this is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is that we are more sinful and more lost than you can possibly imagine. The people didn't even know their hearts. They didn't know how lost they are. But at the same time, we are more loved and more forgiven than we can dare hope. God has already made provision for the atonement of our sins. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that in the Mosaic Covenant, God has bound himself to save us. He has promised to rescue us because of his mercy and love. Look again at verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see, God is saying, I made an oath. Do you remember that? He swore to Abraham. Hebrews 6, 13 to 15. Listen to this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Here is the essence of the Mosaic Covenant which builds on the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3.17 says, the law does not annul the promise. Basically, what that means is that the Mosaic covenant is in continuity with the Abrahamic covenant. I know that's, I just dropped a huge thought bomb on you. If you're curious, there'll be another time for me to unpack that. Come and talk with me individually. But here's the point. Okay, here's the point. The essence of the Mosaic covenant, the essence of it is that it is a covenant of grace. The law condemns us, but God has sworn, God has bound himself to forgive us, to atone for our sins. That's the gospel. Let me close with this final meditation. In the Mosaic Covenant, at the inauguration ceremony, do you remember Moses throws the blood on the people and he says, behold, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Now, here's the question. Why should it be that animal sacrifices can atone for our sins, can forgive us of our sins? Here's what Hebrews 10, 4 and 6 says. Listen to this. It is impossible, okay? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And what was all of those sacrifices in the Mosaic Covenant all about then? Listen to this. Therefore, 
when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. All of those animal sacrifices were a foreshadowing. They were a type. They were pointing forward to the body of Jesus Christ. In verse 31, when God said, I will not forget the covenant I swore to your fathers. He was pledging to Moses. He was pledging to Abraham, his son. That one day he would send Jesus Christ, his beloved son, who would live the perfect life, who would keep every aspect of the Mosaic covenant in every way. In Matthew, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? He said, not one jot and tittle of the law will pass away until it is fulfilled. And then Jesus Christ, as the sacrificial lamb, he lays down his life on the cross in order to take the punishment that we deserve so that we might receive his perfect righteousness. And when we believe that, let me pause for the plane. That was my only time this this Sunday. Pat myself the back. When you believe this, when you receive Christ into your life, then you will gain a new power because of the Holy Spirit to obey God, to love Him. That's the gospel. It's the greatest news that has ever been declared. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is not that you reward good people, but the gospel is that you forgive sinners. Like everyone sitting in this congregation, like me, your mercy and your love. We deserve death. We deserve banishment from the earth. But you provided atonement for sin in Jesus Christ. We pray for this new power in the spirit. We pray that we would be new creations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.